0: section nine of the roman triumvirates by charles merivale this librivox recording is in the public domain read by pamela Nagami. chapter four the first triumvirate of caesar pompeius and crassus part two while cato with favonius another tribune as vehement but not more efficient than himself was fruitlessly dashing himself against the cool machinations of this consummate politician, Cicero was swaying uncertainly from side to side, attaching himself now to the party of the Senate, whose coldness alarmed and irritated him, and again courting the powerful consul for the sake of the protection which he might himself soon require against the intrigues of Clodius, who threatened him with impeachment. For his action in the affair of catalina he still continued indeed to vaunt the merits of his own famous consulship and descended so far as to solicit Lucius to sing its praises in the work he was composing on contemporary history but he felt the ground already slipping from under him he had reason to fear that the nobles would basely abandon him to his enemies if they thought they could advance their own interests in so doing the knights to whose claims he had at first proposed passionately to devote himself proved faithless to the champion whose sincerity they might perhaps reasonably question on all sides it became apparent that the ability which he had so nobly exercised had gained him no solid and permanent position in the state that in the absence of high birth and connections of a large political following or of strong military supports the burgher of arpinum must despair of guiding the commonwealth through the shoals of its civil dissensions withdrawing from the forum cicero now wandered restlessly from one of his villas to another trying to divert his mind by study and composition he persuaded himself perhaps that he was honorably shrinking from the crafty seductions of the various heads of factions he declined a seat at the board for the division of public lands but he sighed for the security which might be afforded him by the dignified office of an augur and such he said with pretended playfulness was the only bribe he would accept but his enemy Clodius was ingratiating himself assiduously with the chiefs of rival factions, and everything foreboded an attack upon him, against which he had no solid defense to offer. At this crisis the favor in which the people held their champion was increased by the discovery, real or fictitious, of a plot against his life. Vettius, who had previously accused caesar of complicity with catalina was seized with a dagger on his person and avowed it was said that cato and other nobles had suborned him to assassinate both caesar and pompeius the nobles retorted indeed that the pretended plot was a fabrication of the consul himself the culprit was thrown into prison and was found a few days afterwards dead in his bed suspicion became rife and various personages of note were more or less implicated in it but no further light was ever thrown upon the subject and the state of public feeling already greatly excited was rendered more uneasy than ever meanwhile caesar pursued the object he had in view without faltering and without a failure when the nobles had been frustrated in their opposition to his election they had made a futile attempt to neutralize their defeat by fastening upon him the reversion of a petty charge, the supervision of the roads and forests in Italy. Such a province might have contented an indolent man of fashion. One who was quitting his chair as consul might prefer an easy post at home to the toils and dangers of a distant government. But such were not Caesar's views, and he was not to be so balked of them his first command in spain had satisfied his immediate necessities he cared not to go abroad a second time merely for the sake of plunder but he was determined to place himself at the head of a powerful army and consolidate a basis of military operations pompeius had made himself an army though he had since thrown it away caesar would do no less his position would not perhaps allow him to be equally magnanimous. As consul, he had been secure, and as proconsul, he might also effectually protect himself. But whenever he should descend from the vantage of the imperium, he might easily fall a victim to the vengeance of the parties he had outraged. He had, in fact, already drawn the sword, though it was nine years before he passed the Rubicon he could never sheath his sword again till he had gained the victories of pharsalia and munda he resolved to quit the city gather strength and resources on the field of foreign adventure and at the fitting season interpose if necessary with arms and fling all his enemies under his feet beyond that his views were vague and misty but they were full no doubt of broad and generous aspirations In the confusion of affairs at home, in the manifest debility of the Senate, and in the corruption of the people, he saw the evidence that the days of the free state were numbered. He knew that the government must be reconstructed, and he trusted in his own energy and genius to seize the right means at the right moment for launching it upon a new career, expanded and fortified by the provinces which had hitherto enjoyed so little share in it. But his own preeminence was the first object that occupied his field of vision, and with all his genius and all his magnanimous impulses, to the last he saw but dimly beyond it. But meanwhile the affections of the populace in the city had been completely won by the games, the shows, the largesses which Caesar had showered upon it the tribes contemptuously set aside the paltry commission which the senate would have assigned him and offered him his colleague in vain protesting the united provinces of the cisalpine and illyricum for five years with an army of five legions the city had been recently alarmed by renewed movements among the conquered races beyond the alps the allobroges had flown to arms at the first outbreak of catalina's insurrection the helvetii from the sources of the rhine and the rhone were preparing a great national migration westward which threatened a wide displacement of the native populations and portended still further revolutions the apprehension thus excited issued in a call for measures of vigilance and repression we know not what intrigues were set in motion how caesar's friends exerted themselves how pompeius was cajoled into assisting them how the nobles were baffled or coerced. But so it was, that in spite of Cato's angry warnings, the Senate was induced to add the transalpine province to the government, already exorbitant, which had been pressed upon their favourite by the people. The proconsulate of Caesar in the West might now rival the extraordinary eastern command conceded to the ambition of Pompeius. Such a precedent as that of the Manilian Bill could not long remain without its natural consequences, and this second representation of the same startling drama was not destined to pass without a tragic consummation. Caesar did not immediately quit the city. He might pretend, perhaps, to be still occupied in the completion of his numerous levies, but he was no doubt intent on watching affairs at home before removing to a distant government. The new consuls, gabinius and calpurnius piso were both adherents of the triumvirs men it would seem of bad private character as well as unscrupulous politicians but our accounts of them rest chiefly upon the representations of cicero who at a later period vehemently assailed them of the scandalous reputation of publius claudius who now rises into prominence as a tribune there can be less question this young reprobate was content to make himself the tool of the Triumvirs, and aimed at a position in which he could effectually serve their projects. Being of the patrician order, he obtained his adoption into a plebeian house, to enable him to sue for the tribuneship of the plebs. Having attained to this office, he introduced various measures for checking the power of the senatorial faction. He declared himself the avenger of the men who had fallen as alleged accomplices of catalina contending that cicero had sacrificed them to his own selfish policy and had exceeded the law in condemning them to death unheard like the bold tribunes of old he denied the authority of the senate to arm the consul with irregular powers for the safety of the state the ultimate decree was no doubt an irregularity which never had been and perhaps could not be reduced within the legitimate prescriptions of the constitution clodius threatened cicero with impeachment pompeius and crassus looked on complacently caesar more kindly disposed toward him would have removed him from the impending storm by the offer of service under his own government or elsewhere but cicero always hoping that the state would one day allow itself to be saved by his eloquence refused to quit the centre of affairs, and trusted to his own ability to save himself. The nobles for their part proved their cruel ingratitude, and did not care to exert themselves in the defence of the upstart statesman. The tribune was left free on all hands to plant his batteries against him. The attack of Clodius assumed the form of a resolution of the people in general terms, interdicting fire and water, to whosoever should have inflicted death on a citizen without giving him an appeal to the tribes no culprit was named but cicero was manifestly indicated in vain had the senate thrown over him the shield of its decree accused by a tribune before the people he could not venture to plead a sanction which they would denounce as tyrannical he descended into the forum in the garb of a suppliant and formally invoked the assistance of his friends and the compassion of the multitude. The knights among whom he had many sympathizers clothed themselves in black and attended his steps as he addressed the citizens from door to door. Crowds of the meaner populace swelled the mournful retinue. The senators were encouraged to mediate in his behalf and propose a decree declaring that the attack now made upon him was regarded as a public calamity. But the consuls interposed. Clodius called on the people to resist, raised tumults in the streets, and easily proved that his faction was the stronger of the two. Cicero threw himself on the protection of Pompeius, but was coldly repulsed. Clodius pressed his resolution. He convened the tribes in the Flaminian circus outside the walls to give Caesar, who at the beginning of the year had not yet quitted Italy, an opportunity of attending. The proconsul reminded the assembly of his own vote against the capital sentence and repeated his condemnation of it as an act of illegal violence. At the same time, with his usual moderation, he dissuaded, though perhaps but faintly, the indulgence of revenge. Cicero, however, saw that his case was desperate and fled, hoping to escape at least a public condemnation. But Clodius still pursued his triumph and exacted a sentence of banishment beyond 400 miles from the city. He obtained also a decree for the forfeiture of the criminals' estates, gave up his villa at Tusculum to be pillaged by the consuls, who were his bitter personal enemies, and raised to the ground his mansion on the Palatine, consecrating its site to the goddess of liberty to render its future restitution impossible but the associates of Catalina were not yet fully avenged, while Cato, who had most sternly denounced them, was still unassailed in person or repute. Clodius, with the countenance at least of his patrons, prepared a snare for the immaculate statesman, and sought to lower his estimation under the guise of honorable employment. The tribune, it seems, had a private grudge against the king of Egypt, Ptolemaeus Lethyrus, and he induced the people to take umbrage at this potentate's appointment of his younger son to succeed him on the throne of cyprus the inheritance was a rich one there was plunder to be obtained and the victim was innocent and harmless by a refinement of ill-nature clodius imposed upon cato through a vote of the people a task unjust and cruel in itself and one to the temptations of which his purity might be expected to succumb cato who made it a point of honor to accept any charge laid upon him by the sovereign people submitted to become the instrument of their insolent wickedness he executed their orders with inflexible strictness though he mingled some personal kindness with the harshness of his public measures it is recorded moreover to his honor that he kept his hands free from all taint of corruption throughout this indecent transaction The triumvirs, meanwhile, were satisfied with the removal of an importunate opponent for a brief period only. The triumphal career of Clodius did not extend beyond his single year of office. Caesar quitted the city at the same time as Cicero. Clodius might have shrunk from offending a chief of his vigour and determination, but he allowed himself to affront the more phlegmatic Pompeius, and even laid himself under suspicion of planning his assassination. One of the tribune's slaves was seized, it seems, at the door of the triumvir with a dagger under his clothes, and avowed that he had been placed there by his master to commit the murder. At the same time, the attitude of the populace under the unruly tribune's influence was supposed to menace the great man's safety. Pompeius took the precaution of withdrawing from public view. He was assailed by the mob in his own house, and the consul Piso openly took part with Clodius. Pompeius was now roused to stronger measures. He detached the other consul, Gabinius, from his colleague, lent all his influence to the faction of the Senate, and obtained the election of consuls of his own choice for the year ensuing. The triumvirs now combined to favour the restoration of Cicero and the abasement of his enemy. Clodius failed to obtain a second year of office. All the new tribunes were men disposed to the recall of the patriot orator the new consuls lentulus and metellus in the very first days of their office proposed it all the acts of clodius were declared illegal his pretended adoption into the plebs had been informal the bill against cicero was suddenly discovered to be unconstitutional as being a privilegium that is an enactment against an individual citizen clodius indeed divested of all legitimate power ventured to oppose the measure by violence and armed a mob to overawe the debates the nobles were ready to meet force by force they encouraged milo to lead his gladiators into the streets for seven months the city was infested by licentious rioters on both sides it was a legitimate opportunity for pompeius to summon his veterans to control the rival factions But the chief of the army still hesitated to employ it and waited to be himself invoked the senate would not sacrifice its recovered independence and preferred anarchy to submission it was not till the fourth of august that the tribes could at last meet and deliberate unmolested and the recall of cicero was voted with acclamation the return of the long-lost patriot might be likened to a triumphal procession from his landing at brundisium in fifty seven b c to his entry into rome he was hailed with unbounded acclamations by the volatile italians the citizens ashamed of the favour which they had bestowed upon a worthless demagogue greeted with redoubled fervour the real saviour of the state the father of his country such at least is cicero's own account of his return nor is there any reason to question its general truth. We may hope, however, that he had learnt some lesson from his late disgrace. The hollowness of popular flattery on the one hand, the insincerity of aristocratic favour on the other. He had been the idol of the multitude and the puppet of the nobles. By neither had he been justly estimated or admired for his own substantial merits. He must have felt that he did not possess that weight in public affairs to which his talents and virtues legitimately entitled him he had failed partly through the natural disadvantages of his position but in no slight degree also from a want of force and simplicity in his own character so it was that his dream of conciliating interests and classes had vanished his countrymen were impracticable the position was beyond hope the state was manifestly doomed to perish and he had saved it only for a moment after all the great action of his life was destined to be cited in history as no better than a splendid failure wearied out and sickened of affairs he now withdrew himself more and more from public life lucullus catullus hortensius had all done the like perhaps from similar feelings of vexation and disgust. But the aspirations of Cicero were still noble and worthy of his enlightened genius. He now threw himself more devotedly into literary occupations, and sought forgetfulness or repose in the philosophical speculations of the great masters of thought who had gone before him. End of section 9